I hope you have your Bibles this morning. I'd love for you to find 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're in our summer series. Peter is about to start going into his concluding marks concerning this issue of submission and suffering. Today he's going to be dealing specifically with suffering. We're going to look at verses 13 through 22. Last week I was able to read verse 8 and 9. I just want to point this out. Verse 10, 11, and 12, Peter is quoting Psalm chapter 34. Psalm chapter 34 is uh, what he's quoting there. And he just simply says, just, just for the sake of context, notice what he says there in verse number 10. He says, For he that will love his life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now remember, in that text, he was saying that as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we need to be submitting to each other, loving one another. And he gives us all these beautiful attitudes that we need to be having towards one another. And he speaks of these things because the culture is so wretched. The culture is evil. The culture is coming against them. Nero is the Pharaoh. It's not the Pharaoh. He's the Caesar. And Nero is doing everything in his power to put pressure on these Christians in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. So Peter writes this letter, and he sends it around to all the churches, wants every one of the churches to read it, to encourage them first and foremost that their salvation is of Jesus Christ, and it's the blood of Jesus that has cleansed them from all sin. And he's going to continue throughout the letter to continue to point out the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the one event that we have that separates us from every religion out there in the world. We serve a risen Savior. And because we serve a risen Savior, when suffering happens, when suffering pushes against us, if it's just or unjust suffering, especially unjust suffering, there is a purpose in your suffering. That's what he's going to be sharing today. He's going to say, look, Christian friend, there is a purpose in your unjust suffering. Look at what he says there, beginning in verse number 13. The scripture says, And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you of your good conversation in Christ. Remember, we've already pointed this out, but let me say it parenthetically. When you see the word conversation, if you're reading along with me in the King James, he's speaking about our conduct. He's saying not just the lip, not just the words that come off your lips, but the actions that you demonstrate with your life. He says, we want lost people that treat us badly to see our conduct represents Jesus Christ. Verse 17. For it is better if the Lord, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well doing than for evil doing. Here's a hard pill to swallow in Scripture. Sometimes God will allow for you to suffer unjustly at the hands of evil people 
so that your life can bring Him glory. I don't like it any more than you do, but it's in the Scripture. And it's true. Everything works together for God's good. Look at what he says there in verse number 18. He says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, or while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure, whereinto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made sub subject unto him. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Suffering is never any fun. Uh, especially when we feel like suffering is unjust. Uh, it reminded me of a story that I heard of a wife that got up one morning and she wanted to cook her husband breakfast, and so she started frying him two eggs in a pan. It wasn't too long the husband came out of the bedroom and walked right over to the wife and stuck his head over her shoulder, and he said, what are you doing? You got too many eggs in that pan. You better flip them, they're going to stick. Where's the butter? Go get the butter. Are we out of butter? Why, why, why do you never listen to me when you're cooking? What's going on here? Are you going to flip those eggs or not? Flip it, flip it. You got to flip it, honey. Will you flip the eggs? They're going to stick. You never listen to me when I'm telling you how to cook. And the wife stood back, stood back and put the, uh, the spatula down on the stove, turned to her husband and says, Who in the world do you think you are? You act like I have never cooked any eggs before a day in my life. And with a grin on his face, he smiled and said, Honey, I just want you to know what it feels like while I'm driving. <laughs> Suffering is hard. It's hard, especially hard when it's unjust. But you ever think about this? When we go through unjust suffering, if we do not handle it right, brothers and sisters, it will cause us uh, to turn towards God and to say questions like this. If God really loves me, how could he let this happen to me? I've met more than one people over my 24 years of ministry come into my office and say, I just don't understand. I just don't understand why God would, would make me go through something like this. As a matter of fact, they'd say things like this. I'm angry with God. If you don't know how to handle the suffering that God puts your way, you could fall into a temptation to be angry at God. You see, our challenge as believers is to find God's purpose in the midst of our suffering. So in today's text, what we see here is we see Peter is reminding us that suffering is going to happen for Christians. Let me say that again because there's a gospel out there that says once you come to Jesus Christ, everything is just wonderful. You have no worries. You have no cares. Everything is great. It's called the social gospel, and it is a lie straight out of the pits of hell. The Bible says, and the Bible teaches very clearly that you are going to suffer especially if you live in a fallen world. 
We live in a sin-cursed world, and this sin-cursed world has the curse upon it where we have people that will come against us as born-again children of God. They do not like the fact that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And by the way, Jesus said he is the only way to heaven. And say, man, that is such a narrow mindset. It is narrow. In fact, the Bible says narrow is the way to salvation. You can only come to saving faith through Jesus Christ. And so to preach such a narrow gospel and to look at our culture today and to look at the world religions that exist today and say all of those religions are wrong. There's only one true religion that really exemplifies the truth of Scripture and that is Jesus Christ is the Messiah, went to Calvary, died on the cross, on the third day rose again victorious over death, hell, and the grave so that you and I would have a relationship with Him. And so to preach that and to teach that and to live that, you're going to have suffering come your way. Not just suffering from persecution. That's just one form of suffering. But then there's the suffering of the sin-cursed world. Sickness, cancer, pestilence, difficulties, hard times, marriage problems, children problems. All of these things. Jesus said in regards to why the righteous suffer, he said that it rains on the, why, or on the good and it rains on the unjust. It rains on the righteous and it rains on the unrighteous. Uh, brothers and sisters, I submit to you today that in times of suffering, it can be a perfect opportunity for us to bear witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's okay to say, I don't know why I'm going through this, but I know this. God knows why I'm going through this, and I'm asking Him, not why are you letting me go through this, but what are you trying to teach me in this? What are you trying to teach me in this? And what we find out through this text is that Jesus is trying to teach us how to be a witness for Him in the midst of our suffering. As a matter of fact, when you look at this text in verses 13 through 22, it can be broken down into three basic points. Point number one is found in verses 13 through 15. This, in fact, is the witness of our words. The witness of our words. He tells us here in the text that normally, normally we find out in society today that uh, in regards to when you do good, we receive good from other people. But verse number 13 specifically says this, And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? He says there are some people out there who have the goal to harm you. They have the goal to harm you. Last night uh, we were celebrating uh, my daughter's birthday and we had the bright idea to go over to the Brewsters. Uh, she, she wanted to go uh, to, to a place in Duluth to go eat, the Cheesecake Factory. Can I get a witness right there? We got over there. It was a two-and-a-half-hour wait, David. We said, oh, there ain't no way. Let's, let's go to the Italian restaurant. So we went back over uh, to Itali the Italian restaurant, and uh, while we were there, I, I pulled up Brewster's ice cream. I used to take my kids to Brewster's ice cream all the time when they were little. I thought it'd be a good memory for Alyssa, so I uh, typed in Brewster's ice cream. There was one five minutes away down in Decula. I thought, man, yeah, let's go down there. So we went down there and ordered our ice cream. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, this ruckus is going on. And, this, uh, go, uh, and it's all outside. If you've ever been to Brewster's, it's all outside. And the man at the counter, was at, he was saying some things to, the, to the, the teenage workers that were behind the glass. And man, all this thing ensued. And, and then all of a sudden, this, uh, the police were called. And 
Bless God, all I want is a hot fudge sundae. That's all I'm looking for. I'm not looking. But, but I found myself, I found myself putting myself in between my wife and this individual, as well as my family, just waiting, waiting for uh, and hoping and praying, knowing that I was going to preach this message that the Lord was not going to have our deacons try to get me out of jail uh, yesterday. Uh, but there are people out there who get upset. There are people out there that get angry. There are people out there that, that uh, uh, will give, give themselves to be uh, tools of the devil, if you would. And yes, we've got to protect our family. But suffering happens all around us. And when it happens to us, we've got to understand there is the witness of our words. Your words matter. Look at what he says in verse number 14. He says, but and, but and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Peter is quoting Isaiah chapter 8 verse 12 in the latter part of that verse. And he says that when you have these pressures come upon you, you ought to be happy. Now this word happy is communicating to us an inside attitude. There needs to be this inside attitude of happiness. I'm not going to allow this situation to steal my joy. The joy that you have as a born-again child of God is the joy that you find in the Lord. If you read the end of the book, brothers and sisters, we win. We are winners in the end. And so as we're winners in the end and the suffering comes against us, don't you dare let the devil rob you of the joy that God's given you in your salvation. And so he says, happy are ye. Don't be afraid of their terror. Don't be afraid of the trouble that you're in. He goes on to say, look here, we're talking about the witness of our words. He says, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts. If you mark in your Bibles, I would underline that word sanctify. It means to separate from profane things and dedicate it to God. He says, so this, this trial that's coming into your life, don't let it steal your joy. Instead, capture it. And he says, once you capture that fear, capture that terror, be happy. Dedicate that fear and terror to the Lord. Let him handle it. Sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts. He goes on to say, and next, be ready always to answer every man that asketh you the reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. A couple of things here. The first thing he says that you ought to be ready always. You ought to always be ready to give a response, to give an answer to that lost person that's persecuting you, to that lost person that's causing you to suffer, to that lost person that's trying to do harm to you. Be ready always to give an account. You say, I, I'm, I feel like, Pastor, I'm not ready. I, I feel like I'm not ready to do that. I got good news for you. You come tomorrow night and you'll take a 14-week course that will pre pre prepare you to be ready to give an account of the hope that's inside of you according to what the Word of God says with meekness and fear. And look, did you notice what he says there in the text? He says we ought to be willing to give this answer to every man. Every man, every human being that asks us the reason. If someone came up to you, caused some suffering in your life, and then asked you why you responded the way you responded, you were joy-filled, you captured it, you dedicated that to the Lord, 
you sanctified it in your heart, and you were able with meekness and fear to communicate truth to that individual that's harmed you, that's hurt you, and they ask you why. How could you, how could you do that? Could you give them an answer? Would you know what to say? He tells us in the text, he says, you need to know what to say. You need to be able to answer the question and give them a reason for the hope that's inside of you. And you need to do it with meekness and fear. Here's two fascinating words. The word meekness there means you need to do it with the power that's inside of you that's under control. Meekness is power under control. I think we fail to realize sometimes who lives inside of us. Do you realize the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of every born-again Christian? The power that you have inside of you is the greatest power in all the world. It has the power to step out of a difficult situation and step into the glories of heaven. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God through His Word and the power that dwells inside of you to cause you to respond to a situation for His glory, for His honor, for His praise. And if there was ever a time in our culture today where we need to take a stand in meekness and have this power that's inside of us under control, it is now. We must give an account. We must give a reason. We must let everybody know why we are born again. Why are you a Christian? I'll tell you why I'm a Christian. Because I was lost once on my way destined for hell. And as a 14-year-old boy, I didn't understand it all. But I understood this. Jesus died in my place. He died for me. And when he died for me, I didn't want to be separated from him. I knew my sins were sending me to hell. And by faith, I exercised John 3, 16. And I was one of those whosoevers that come to know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and Lord. And on that day, that day, I changed for the glory of God. Man, I'm telling you what, I can't explain it. But all I can say is it happened. I ain't never been the same since. You know, I wish, my, I wish my English teacher was still alive. I know some of you said, he had an English teacher? I did. Believe it or not, I did. She was a good one too. Miss Willadine McMurray, I loved her with all my heart. She told me one day, she said, if you'd ever break out of your shell, God will use you greatly. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I ain't never standing up in front of your class. Never. I was timid. I was shy. <clears throat> I liked to be to myself. I liked to keep to myself. I just didn't want to bother anybody. didn't want anybody bothering me. I said, I'm an introvert by nature. I said, no, you're not. Look at the test. I take tests, and oh, my goodness, I would just rather be by myself, just enjoying time alone with my wife or with my family. I'm not a social butterfly, but I'm telling you one thing. When I got saved, Something happened inside of here. And what happened inside of here, the Holy Spirit was deposited inside of me, and I hadn't been able to shut up since. I'm telling you, that's the God's truth. I can remember when I got saved, I remember walking out of that uh, worship center that day, and as I walked out of that worship, I was telling all of my peers, all of my peers, I got saved at school. And I was asking them, have you got saved? Tell me when you got saved. Did you get? I got saved today. The witness of our words. Bless God, i got to go faster. Number two, 
Verse 16 and 17, the witness of our life. I'm going to go real quick through this one, real quick through this one, brothers and sisters, because I want to get to verses 18 through 22. The witness of our life. Not only do we witness with our words when we're suffering, we also witness with our life. Look at what Peter says, beginning in verse number 16. He says, having a good conscience, I would underline that, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation, your good conduct in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. The Bible says here in this text that a good conscience demands more than just an outside good moral life. He says this moral conscience that we have, this moral conduct that lives inside of us, is so vitally important that not only do we act right, but we also think right. We think right in our head, we think right in our heart. I heard, uh, I believe it was Jerry Vine say it this way. Jerry Vine says, as a Christian, I don't have the luxury of being unkind. Man, I'm going to tell you what, that, would, that right there would change this nation if every born-again child of God would live from that perspective. That means this. You ever heard this comment? I make this comment sometimes. I'll say something like this. I'll say, I love them, but bless God, I don't like them. You do that? So what the good conscience is saying is this. Not only am I supposed to love them as a Christian, but I also need to do everything I can to like them. You see, being a born-again child of God pushes the limits of who we are culturally. Jesus wants us to be in his image. And let me just mention this. What if that was Jesus' attitude towards you? What if he says, man, I, I love them, but I don't like them. I, I can promise you this. Not only does Jesus love you, but he also likes you. He likes you. And so we see that there's this witness that we have with our life. And say, so, well, how do we do that, Pastor? How, how, how do we, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's good to say it. But how do we implement that? How do we appropriate that in our lives? I, I think we can do this two ways. Number one, by avoiding willful disobedience to God from day to day. Avoiding willful disobedience to God. You know what's right and wrong. I know, bless God, I know when I get on... This is why I don't get on 285 anymore. I know. I know. I get on 285, somebody's going to upset me. I'd rather just go through the soup, just go, just go right through 75, 85, just go right through there, then get on 20 uh, when I'm heading uh, back to my hometown. It's better for me to do that than to get over there on 285 and sin. And so I know this, so I'm not going to do it. I'm going to make some changes in my life. Now, I know that's a silly illustration in response, but I hope it's getting through to you. The, what I'm trying to say is simply this. If you know something's going to cause you to stumble, don't willfully go into that situation. Number two. The second thing is, is be quick to confess, repent, and pray for forgiveness when, when you finally come to your senses and you have sinned. This is 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9 ought to be a born-again child of God's best friend. Number one verse. Needs to be the number one verse. Why? Well, because it is written towards us, to us. 
Uh, we, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what I'm challenging my church to do. I'm challenging my church to do what that old bumper sticker we used to see, uh, what it really means. Here's what it said. It said this, live your life so that your preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. That's what I'm asking. You live your life where if I do your funeral, I don't have to stand behind this pulpit and lie. Because here's the bottom line. We're all preaching our own, our own funeral. You're preaching your own funeral. And because you're preaching your own funeral, people know whether or not the preacher's lying when he stands behind them and speaks over the body of the deceased. Uh, brothers and sisters, I submit to you that there's a witness that your life has. And when it comes to suffering and difficulty and pain and hardship and, the, and, and going through something, something hard, there is the witness of your lips, the witness of your mouth, and then there's the witness of your life. Number three, let's get to it, verse 18 through 22. The third thing we see in suffering is the witness of our Savior. The witness of our Savior, verses 18 through 22. Let's look at the text again. The Bible says there, beginning in verse number 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being uh, put to death in the flesh, but quickened, that is, made alive by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God walked in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, or while the ark was preparing, wherein with few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth now also save us, not the putting away of filthy flesh, but the answer of, uh-oh, here it is again, a good conscience towards God. I'd underline that. He's linking this back up to verse number 16. But he also says... We are saved not by water, but by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So it's vitally important that when we look at this text that we make sure it's in, our con it's in the right context. What is Peter talking about? Peter is talking about suffering. And he's talking about how we, as born-again children of God, are to live our lives even though we're suffering. And he's talked about how we live our lives with the, the witness of our language or the witness of our words. We talk, we uh, witness with the witness of our life. Our lifestyle uh, makes a witness. And now he's going to say, Jesus Christ himself made a witness. There was a witness that we see in regards to this issue of suffering. Because Jesus suffered himself. So remember the context that he's speaking of. He's speaking about suffering. He says in verse 17, there are times in our lives where we're going to suffer. Let me tell you what Martin Luther said about this passage of Scripture. Martin Luther said this. Let me quote him. He says this. Quote, a wonderful text is this. And a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means, end of quote. Martin Luther said, I don't have a clue what this means. I don't have a clue what this passage of Scripture means. Well, I'm not, I don't want to stand up here and say that I'm smarter than Martin Luther, but I, I do want to say this. As a, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I depend upon the guidance of the Holy Spirit 
to give me the interpretation regarding this text, and I only know how to interpret it one way. I have committed to it, and in my commitment to this one way of interpretation, that's the only way I've interpreted Scripture from the day I learned it when I started going to seminary. And that is the literal form of interpretation. Now, listen to me very carefully because many of you, when you hear a preacher say, if you're our guest, and you hear preachers say they believe in the literal form of interpretation, you may walk away thinking in your mind, I wonder if that preacher really thinks Jesus is a vine and that we really are branches. No, I don't believe that. I believe that's a metaphor. When I say that I believe in the literal form of interpretation, what I'm saying is when you look at the historical grammatical elements of the text that we're looking at, you have to apply the proper uh, um, language, the proper uh, element into this text. If it's a simile, it's a simile. If it's a metaphor, it's a metaphor. You have to exercise proper grammar inside the text. But you let the text say what the text says. So why are you mentioning all this? Because there are about three to five major interpretations about this verse right here. Three to five. But there is only one interpretation of this text that makes sense. I want to do my best to try to explain it to you today. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 18. The Bible says, For Christ also. What is he referring to? He's referring to the suffering of Jesus Christ. Notice the text. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Now let's stop right there. He's telling us here in this text, giving us an example that Jesus also suffered. Jesus was just. Jesus was righteous. We were unrighteous. And Jesus took our place. If there was anybody that suffered in an unrighteous matter, it was Jesus Christ. He did not deserve to die on Calvary's cross. But he did. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. And because he loves us, look at what, how the Bible, the Bible says, how, how he took our suffering. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Says Jesus Christ physically walked on this earth. He physically died. His heart stopped beating. He died in our place as a sin sacrifice to Almighty God. He was the spotless lamb that died on Calvary's cross. They put him in a tomb. They put him in a grave. But on the third day, the Spirit of God came alive inside the body of Jesus Christ and up from the grave, He arose. Victorious over death, victorious over hell, and victorious over the grave. This is what He says here. That He did this and He did it by the Spirit. Remember what He told Mary when Mary wanted to touch, her, touch Him, David? you remember that? He said, don't touch me yet. I have not ascended to my Father. There was something about the relationship of the flesh and the spirit after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he could not be touched by physical, a physical touch. Verse 19. By which also... This is a reference back to the spirit. He's saying the spirit of Jesus Christ went, he went and preached unto the spirit. Spirits 
in prison. Now, I want you to follow me right here on this. The Bible tells us here in this text that these spirits are in prison. This is a present tense verb. He's saying they're presently in prison. The term prison means hell. So he says, by the same spirit, Jesus went and preached to the spirits who are currently in hell. Now, here's the question. The question that's been asked time and time again. When did this happen? When did this happen? Because when you look at the text, it happened either one or two times. It happened one of these two times. It either happened in the past, or in the past past, like Old Testament past, or it happened when he died and he was in the grave. The question a lot of us deal with is the fact, did Jesus go to hell... After his death, when he was in the tomb for three days, did he go down there? Here's here's my answer. I don't know. I don't know. But I can tell you what this text says. If you say that Jesus Christ went to hell after he died and preached to the spirits that are in hell, then, then you take this text out of its context and you make it a pretext. Why why is that, preacher? Look at verse number 20. Verse number 20 tells us when Jesus did this. Notice what the Scripture says. Which sometime were disobedient. Who were disobedient? These spirits that are currently in hell. They were disobedient at some time in the past. When once the long-suffering of God waited... Was there ever a season in the Old Testament before Jesus Christ showed up on the scene that the long-suffering of God showed forth? I said, man, there's so many stories. I agree. Man, there's a lot. Look at the text. Here it is. In the days of Noah. The best commentary on the Word of God is the Word of God. The Bible is clear when Jesus preached to these spirits that are currently in hell. He preached to them while they were alive in the days of Noah. When did he do this? While the ark was being prepared. Look at what he goes on to say. Wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. When you look at this passage of Scripture, you see that it's very clear that the Scripture is telling us when Jesus preached to these spirits who are currently in hell. He preached to them during the days of Noah when Noah was building the ark. Now, wait a minute. Watch this. Is there any other passage of Scripture that would point to this? Peter actually has something to say about this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter calls Noah a preacher of, anybody know? Righteousness. He is a preacher of righteousness. Noah being a preacher of righteousness means that when he was preaching, or while he was building the ark, he was preaching repentance and faith in the coming Messiah. And everyone, this is a dual meaning. It is a dual meaning here in the text. It had dual meaning back in when Noah was building the ark. And it is pointing to a dual meaning here today as we read this text. He's saying, those of you that will receive Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, trust Christ as Savior and then get on the boat. If you want your life to be saved, you must trust Christ as Savior and get on the boat. 
And he tells us here in the text, he says, In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, wherein only few, only eight souls were saved. Who were saved? His family. Can you imagine that whole season while the ark's being built? Invitation after invitation after invitation. And the Bible tells us the persecution. The Bible tells us the suffering that Noah went through. And as Noah was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God through Jesus Christ was in Noah as he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to those people. Those people rejected only eight people received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. So where are those people that rejected Jesus? In hell. So he says here in this text, he says, by which also by the Spirit he went. Jesus went. He left his throne as the pre-incarnate Christ. He came down to Noah as Noah was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and he preached to those people who did not receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. They died and the evidence of their death is there were only eight people on the ark. Only eight people got saved. The rest of them died, and where are they at? They're in hell. Why? Because they rejected Jesus Christ. The gospel has always been the same. It has never changed. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to the book of Revelation, there's only one way to get to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Only one. And so we see that he preached to them during the days of Noah. Look at what he says. He goes on to say in the testimony of Jesus... He says, the like figure, what's he talking about there? Water. Those that received Jesus Christ got on the ark. Who got on the ark? We find that Noah's family, eight people got on the ark. The flood waters was rising and they were saved. They were saved. He says, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Remember what he told us before in verse number 16, to have a good conscience? Peter is simply saying this, when you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, you want to identify with him. And in wanting to identify with him, you surrender to baptism. In surrendering to baptism, you identify with Jesus Christ on the cross. He says simply this, we are buried in the likeness of his death, and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. It is an identification. It is a picture. It does not wash your sins away. The text says it very plainly here. He says baptism saves us, but it doesn't save us from the perspective of cleansing us from the filth of the flesh. It washes no sin away. Only the blood of Jesus can wash sin away. So what does baptism wash? Your conscience. You have a good conscience that you have been buried in the likeness of Jesus' death and raised in the likeness of Jesus' resurrection. Here's simply what I'm saying when you look at this text. And Peter, again, remember, he's talking about suffering. He's talking about suffering. He says, in regards to the witness of Jesus Christ, when you come to know Christ as Savior, is baptism essential for salvation? No. But your conscience will lead away with you until you surrender to it. 
And there are some, there are many, there's a lot of Christian believers today who got their baptism and all mixed up. It's out of order. It's not in the right order. And it eats away at them. It eats, and you may be here, it eats away. And for years and years and years and years, you know you need to do it. But whatever it may be, sometimes it's pride, sometimes it's insecurities, sometimes it's fear. Regardless of what it is, it will eat away at you until you surrender to it. You cannot be a born-again child of God and get away with it. You can't. It's not essential for salvation, but Peter says in regards to this, we are only saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but in order for us to have a good conscience as a born-again child of God, we've, we need to be baptized if we've trusted Christ as Savior. And then he goes on to say this, look at verse 22. Who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. He simply says this, the witness of Jesus Christ points to the fact that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God. Again, let me point out what I said at the beginning of this passage of Scripture. Turn back, if you would, to, uh, uh, to verse number 12 of chapter 3. He says this, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Don't you dare think the evil that goes on in this world today. The devil's getting away with it. They're not getting away with nothing. The Lord sees it. The Lord will justify. The Lord will save. The suffering that you're going through is the same suffering that Jesus Christ went through. And the suffering that he went through, for the joy of our salvation, he went through it willingly. And we find here in the text that it is our responsibility through the suffering that we're going through is to be a witness to this lost and dying world with our words, with our life, and with the testimony of the witness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question this morning. In regards to this issue of salvation, if you were to die today, where would you spend an eternity? Would you go to heaven? Or would you go to hell? This evening at 6 o'clock, we are going to be ordaining one of our young men. This ordination has been called from RU4. Alex will be ordained tonight. And he will be ordained so that he could go share the gospel in other churches for God's glory. He will be set aside. He's been put through the test. He'll be put through another test this evening. And then he'll be ordained uh, tonight at 6 o'clock. I definitely want to invite everyone here to come and be a part of his ordination if possible. But in regard to Alex's life, there was a time in his life where he trusted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and Lord. He had to come to a place in his life where he would say simply this, if I died today, if I died in my sins, I'd go to hell. And the gospel simply says there's only one way to heaven. Only one. That's through Jesus Christ.
And brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ cared enough about the wickedness of Noah's day that Jesus Christ, living inside the preacher Noah, a preacher of righteousness, preached the gospel to a lost and dying world. And the only people that responded to that gospel message was his family. We're living in the days of Noah today. Wickedness abounds everywhere. Everywhere you turn, there are people saying, this is the way to God, this is the way to God, that's the way to God, this is the way to get right with God. And every one of them ignore the truth of the Word of God. According to the Scriptures, the Bible says, if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you want to be saved today, dear friend, I submit to you simply this. The only way for you to be right with God is to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. There'll be no second chance in hell. The rich young ruler in hell opened his eyes and he could not get out. There was no second chance. It was not purgatory. There is no purgatory. When you die, you're separated from God forever. God in his sovereignty knew this. And in the days of Noah, he preached the gospel of Jesus. They rejected the gospel. And they died, and they are in hell today. Brothers and sisters, I don't want anybody to go to hell. I want you to go to heaven. And I want you to come Jesus' way. If you're here today and say, how would I do that, Pastor? I wonder, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, as Brother Lee comes with a hymn of invitation, I want to ask you, from your heart to God's, would you say, say, say something like this to the Lord? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Savior. And this morning I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I repent of my sins and I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I'll live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.